Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. American film has consistently used African-American characters in ways meant to take away their agency. In his book, A Long, Long Way, Hollywood's Unfinished Journey from Racism to Reconciliation, Baylor professor Greg Garrett provides an overview of this activity. By providing a six-step process with a film for each step, Greg's book shows positive aspects of the journey, along with why the road has not yet been completed. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg Garrett. Welcome, Greg. How are you today? I'm doing great, Joel. It's uh, such fun to talk with you about this book. I know that among your works, you have written a number of books and articles that discuss the role of religion in popular culture. But in this new book, you also uh, bring in the issue of race, a topic that continues to be a problem in American filmmaking. So as we discuss the book, A Long, Long Way, Hollywood's Unfinished Journey from Racism to Reconciliation, uh, we will definitely spend time reviewing how all these work together for you. Great, great. Now, from the introduction, I know that you've regularly hosted group viewings of some of the films that you discuss in the book, and they've also been part of your classwork at Baylor. How did these initial experiences assist assist you in developing the book? Well, the actual idea from the book came from uh, one of these public speaking things, one of these public programs. Um, I was invited to do um, a retreat for an Episcopal church in uh, inner city Delaware. And it was a a church where a black uh, congregation and a white congregation had been put together uh, about a decade earlier. And uh, the priest in charge of the church Said, you know, we, we do a lot of things really well together, but we've never had like, the hard conversations about how we're different from each other um, that we really need to have. And, and so it was actually his idea. Uh, David Andrews was the priest who brought me in and he said, I, I want to do a, like a weekend film festival about race and then ask you to kind of moderate the conversations for us. And let's, let's see where they take us and where they ended up taking us were into really deep uh, conversations where we were able to kind of bypass the usual starting points where people, you know, have their own um, kind of defensiveness or their own, um, you know, uh, set of things that are essential to my identity. Um, and so we were talking that first night about characters in uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And um, I knew before we were even halfway through that conversation that there was something really powerful taking place that I wanted to continue thinking about. And that night when I got back to the hotel, I, I emailed my editor at Oxford University Press, and uh, I told her, I think I know what the next book is going to be. And so that was very, very early. You know, I didn't know what the shape of it was going to be, and there was so much that I didn't know yet. I mean, this was a four-year process. But um, there was that very powerful sense that, you know, I've always known that story allows us to talk about really important things. You know, I've taught film and literature uh, at Baylor University for 30 years. 
And that's one of the things that I love most about literature and film classes is that we get to have these really deep conversations about what it means to be an American, about race, about, um, you know, uh, about gender. And usually we're able to, to, as I was saying, dive deeper than if we had just sat down across the table from each other and said, let's talk about race. And it's interesting because you do bring parts of that experiences throughout in when you discuss some of the films, you you actually present some of uh, uh, of some of the I don't want to use the word pushback, but discussion that went on as part of those those various uh, the, those get togethers. Yeah, I, I have the sense that the book is on the one hand, the book that I have written about these experiences and about how film and our wisdom traditions uh, can help us understand the, the issues that are at stake here. But it, it's also, I think, a presentation of all of these other voices, because um, one of the reasons this book took so long to write is that my perspective was just so limited in terms of um, my own experience, um, you know, with things like uh, the justice system. Um, I had to talk with other people. I had to listen to other people. And, and I wanted to include as many of those voices from those programs um, as I could, because they were often really smart people talking about things much um, better than I could uh, talk about them myself. One of the other interesting aspects of your background, though, that, that I think adds to this overall conversation is the inclusion of religion and spirituality as part of the book. And in and, and, and your other writing as well, obviously, you've written quite a bit, and religion has been very important in your writing, especially. But I know you earned a divinity degree later in your career. Um, yeah. What? Why did you think that it was, I mean, I don't, we don't need to go through a whole, you've already written biographies of your, of, of your mm -hmm. experiences, but why did you think it was important to include that as part of this overall examination? Well, the, the thing that's sort of at the core of what I do is in my nonfiction, I typically am writing about religion and culture and uh, the, the intersection between those two things, because I think of them as the two sort of primary ways that we make meaning. Um, so we're making meaning through our art and culture, you know, and we're also making meaning through uh, whatever philosophical or wisdom traditions that we follow and, and learn from. And so what I wanted to do in this book was to put those two primary ways that we make meaning um, together in service of what I feel like is the most difficult um, issue in American culture and American history, um, the, the whole problem of, of race and white privilege. And um, so these were sort of two lenses, if you will. Uh, so on, one, on the one hand, you've got the, the lens of what I'm thinking of is, you know, primarily mainstream Hollywood films intended for, you know, a general audience, and often that's intended for a wide audience, and how people have made meaning about race and prejudice through those films. And then there are also a number of things, um, particularly in my own tradition, um, because I'm a Christian theologian. Uh, so, you know, what does Augustine have to say to us uh, about what it means to be a neighbor? Uh, what do the Christian Gospels have to say? What do the Hebrew prophets have to say? And so those are, are two kind of different ways, but kind of parallel tracks, if you will, for us to explore um, the question of race. So in the book, you basically um, developed, for the book, you developed six phases of what you see as the, the movement in film 
as far as race and film. Um, how long have you worked on these concepts, though, this, this concept of this structure? Um, I started developing this idea, the, the sort of film historian aspect of the book, which is thinking about the, the different ways that, that Hollywood's treatment of race has shifted from Birth of a Nation to, say, Get Out, which are the kind of range of films in the book. Um, I started thinking about them um, early on in this process, and there were sort of unconscious things that I had known in teaching film, but I hadn't formulated necessarily this um, this kind of six-part um, movement. And uh, I was asked yesterday if I thought that Get Out was the ultimate, you know, if, the, if this is the last movement, and I think it probably isn't, um, probably what things begin to look like is that we have a greater movement toward diversity still, uh, because I begin the book by talking about not just racial violence in the United States, but also the, the Oscar so white movement. And um, I think that as um, the academy begins to change, as they have done over the last couple of years, and admit uh, more people of color, and um, you know, year after year, more people of color are writing, directing, starring in films. Um, that that probably is a, a next phase after this, and we're moving kind of in that direction now. But it just it struck me as a, a useful way of categorizing these films as part of periods in which we began with uh, you know Birth of a Nation and just a very clear sense that the depiction of people of color you know they're subhuman, um, not even worthy of representing themselves because D.W. Griffith has white actors play the primary black roles. Um, and then every step along the way, there's a little bit of a loosening, a little bit of a liberalization where people begin to uh, treat uh, people outside the white, white mainstream with more of their humanity. And it's smaller roles and then lead roles. And then um, people of color start making their own stories and, and their own movies. And uh, then that last phase with Get Out, they're taking Hollywood films and genres and turning them on themselves as a way of pushing back against racism. So I, I think it's a really useful way of thinking about American film history. And I don't know if it's unique to me. I haven't run across it, but uh, it did seem like a really useful way of expressing the, the gradual movement uh, toward more diversity and in, in the full humanity of the people of color represented in the films. Now you present the phases Basically, chronologically, and of course, the, the, the six films that you feature are presented chronologically, but I think it comes through, and I think you would probably, you, I'm sure you would agree with me, is that there's still going, there's a lot of back and forth from one phase to the next. It's not a logical progression all the time. Maybe not so much right. all the way back to Birth of a Nation, but as you discuss in the book, um, and we'll talk about it, I think, in a little bit when I I wanted to talk about it a little bit later on. Um, the con there are certain concepts that still exist today that could be considered way back in a previous phase. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to take one simple example, there are some racial tropes that still get played out in, you know, contemporary films. Uh, so the white savior motif right. still appears when you've got a, a white lead actor and it's almost always a white lead actor, not an actress. Um, who, you know, with, with the help of and on behalf of people of color, you know, um, saves them or elevates them. Um, and, and that's a familiar uh, story that we continue to see, like, our, our biggest actors falling for. 
Uh, and there's also the sort of magical Negro trope um, that gets played still to this day where you have a character who's uh, a person of color whose primary reason for being in the story is to elevate the white lead. Um, so those, those are part of that kind of pendulum swing. You know, we go, we go back and forth and we have uh, these, these moments where we seem to leap forward and, and have some, uh, some real change. And then, you know, we have uh, one of these racist um, story or character tropes that, that pops into, you know, a, a top grossing film. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that I think the title of the book is so appropriate. Um, it comes, as you know, from something that Martin Luther King said when he was asked about how far have we come in racial relations. And he said, well, we've come a long, long way and we've got a long, long way to go. And so that kind of reflects for me that that pendulum swing. Um, let's let's recognize uh, is happening that we should uh, celebrate and then try and identify those things that haven't uh, gotten to the place where they ought to be. It's almost also two steps forward, one step back. Uh, I'm yeah. thinking, I mean, yeah. you talk about Black Klansmen right from the beginning. And of course, the film that year that caused the bigger controversy in a way was the fact that the one that won Best Picture was Green was Green Book, which, of course, yeah. is your basic white savior um, storyline. And it's unfortunate <clears throat> that with all the discussion, and yet people would point to that, isn't that great? This one went, I says, but it's driving Miss Daisy with a, with right. a younger white man than an older white woman. And it, it is one of those racial reconciliation films that the Academy loves, because they get to um, they get to recognize a film about racism, but it's a film that ties things up kind of neatly and nicely. And typically, the story takes the audience off the hook in terms of any further action. So, you know, at the end of a Spike Lee film, it's typically open ended, and you walk out of the theater and you're still thinking about it and still talking about it and still recognizing how much there is to do. But um, you, you see a film like The Driving Miss Daisy or a Green Book and everything's been, you know, wrapped up and there's a plot, you know, bow tied at the end. And you can feel good about yourself and you can say, well, I guess racism is done. It's interesting that when Green Book came out, and of course, even more so than Driving Miss Daisy, I think Green Book had so much, the, the concept, I mean, there were documentaries that were produced right at the same time and a couple of news stories that, you know, well-developed news stories that really got into the depth of what the Green Book really was and why it's important. And yeah. uh, it was that, I've, I felt that was better than anything that came out of uh, interest because of the movie itself. Well, those those are really compelling stories and, and they involve people of color in a way that, you know, has an incredible amount of drama and conflict in it. Um, but it, it also is often easier to get a movie made that, you know, got a conventional white lead in it. So, for example, we showed Glory at uh, Washington National Cathedral in February. And, you know, if we're in this sort of mode where we celebrate what's good and, and draw attention to what we wish were better. Um, you know, it, it's a sad thing that that movie has Matthew Broderick at its center. But the movie doesn't probably get made unless Matthew Broderick is at its center. And um, we all agreed that there would be a more compelling and more interesting movie about the men of the, you know, the first uh, black battalion raised in the north, and you could make that movie now, I think. But you know, there are the thing that we we know about film is that it's an art form that's also a, got an incredible amount of economics involved. 
And, um, you know, to make a feature film is a hugely expensive proposition. And, you know, we are thankful for smaller independent films that can tell stories uh, about uh, marginalized characters. And I try and talk about some of those in the book and, uh, and to program those whenever I can. Um, but it, it is a, it's an ongoing struggle um, because Hollywood still likes to make certain kinds of movies and doesn't trust that audiences are going to come out even with all the evidence um, against it. And unfortunately, they always tend to be the kind of movies that get pushed real hard during awards season. And it's not just the race examples that we're talking about, but there's been a number of other kinds, too, where you play a historical character. You play yeah. you play someone who has some other issue going on that um, lessens them somehow, and it's their ability to rise above it that tends to be so important. So. It's just unfortunate right. that that's just a, as we've as you've already talked about. It's part of the issue with many of these organizations that give these awards, like the Academy, which is at least until recently part of its problem was is that it's old and it's um, probably way too it's given way too much credit for its value as a as a arbiter of good film. Yeah, yeah, um, that's that's where the Oscars to White movement comes in because. I think as we see the the Academy become more more female, more diverse, and younger, that uh, some of the traditional kinds of movies, you know, and when it's Oscar season, you can almost count on there being a number of articles that use a phrase something like, "This is the kind of movie that the Academy likes." Right. And uh, it's I, I would love to live in a world where we don't know exactly uh, where the best film of that year is actually the best film, but um, that's, that's a whole other issue. So in the initial phase, the first phase, you, you discuss how racists used film to provide racists, to provide racist stereotypes and basically continue, as you pointed out before, uh, the concept of, of an African American or a, a minority being subhuman. And of course, the film you chose to examine was Birth of a Nation, which is pretty logical. Um, but yeah. now you also mentioned in the introduction that you used the film in a film class at Baylor. How did that experience affect your examination of the movie and the book? I have actually taught it, I think, three times uh, during the writing of this book at Baylor, uh, twice in an undergraduate um, film class and once in a graduate seminar on um, race, film, and theology. And um, the thing that, of course, is really important with many of these films is they've got to be put in a cultural context because otherwise they're just really offensive. Um, and so what I try and do in the book as well as in these classes and, and the lessons from how the students responded to them get you know kind of incorporated into the book, but there's this very strong sense in which I'm asking them to do what James Baldwin did when he talked about the film, which is to say you've got to hold in suspension. This is a brilliant work of art in a heinous set of prejudices that are being advanced. And you can't separate one from the other. In fact, the reason that the film is so successful and in advancing its stereotypes is because it's such a successful movie. And so I try to call attention to my students and to uh, – people reading the book, you can have this experience where you have an emotional reaction to the film because D.W. Griffith is trying to get you to have an emotional reaction. 
He is using every tool at his disposal, and he is the great early genius of our, our uh, system. And so um, what you have to do is to, to hold um, those two things in your mind at the same time, that I'm going to be manipulated, I'm going to have uh, some kind of reaction to this film, and I am also aware of, and particularly in you know, 2020, aware of the many ways that this film is full of things that make me feel awful um, and that I, I don't want to take into my head. One of the things I remember about the, the, the last time Netflix had it on, had it for a while, they don't anymore, but they were showing a, 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 a re-release of it. I mean, the film itself wasn't changed, but what was interesting mm -hmm. was they had the uh, 1930 sound introduction with B.W. Griffith and I forgot who he was with, and they were talking about the film, and basically Griffith very briefly discusses some of the controversy and then doubles down and basically says it is exactly still correct. And, of course, um, its uh, view, as most people who, who understand the, you know, film history in particular, uh, it was, still was. Uh, you can't watch the film without still having a, a, a reaction that, that uh, is unbelievable. Yeah, that was uh, Walter Houston, John that Houston's was it. Thank father. <laughs> and um, I believe that Walter Houston presents him with the Confederate officer's sword um, as a, a part of their conversation. And then you're right, he does double down on it. And um, his response um, to the uproar, because um, there was thankfully an incredible amount of pushback um, I mentioned in the book that not only did this uh, film reinvigorate and sort of recreate the Ku Klux Klan, but it also turned the NAACP into a powerful national organization pushing back against racism. And um, so there is this sense that he responded to all of this by just sort of saying, no, I was right. And um, as you know, um, he goes on to make the movie Intolerance, which becomes his answer to his critics, which is basically, you are intolerant of me. Um, and that's, that's about all he had to say about it. Um, thankfully, you know, we've got uh, other filmmakers responding to that. We've got Oscar Micheaux, for example, uh, who in 1920 um, releases Within Our Gates as a, a, a black feature film in response to Birth of a Nation. And that is very rarely seen, but it is an amazing film to watch in conjunction with Birth of a Nation, because it's produced just a few years later. It's uh, a black filmmaker very early at the beginning of a long and illustrious career, um, making films largely for black viewers. And the whole idea from that is simply to say we are fully human and capable of an artistic response. And related, I know we talked about no one would make a movie like Birth of a Nation today, uh, or at least Maybe maybe a clan would, but <laughs> white supremacist group would. But what we've seen though is remember how, what we've talked about going back and forth. This the, the strength of the um, the lost cause narrative, which of course Birth of a Nation is the picture perfect um, movie for that concept, which still has its uh, fans even now in the 21st century when we know so much about what the Civil War really was about. Yeah. Well, you know, the first five minutes of Spike Lee's Black Klansman are just a straight-on acknowledgement that the lost cause narrative is still 
a really powerful story in our culture. And the other place where you see it, and I talk about it a little bit in the last chapter of the book, um, it's during the writing of this book, of course, that uh, the controversies about Confederate monuments came up. And uh, that's another really interesting way to think about racist art, uh, because most of that, uh, those uh, statues and monuments were not, you know, put up right after the Civil War. They were, they were put up, um, many of them, in the early 20th century. And uh, they are markers, if you will, of, you know, continuing white dominance. It's one of the things that, um, that uh, people of color often felt when they saw those things in a public park or here in Texas, uh, I live uh, in Austin and uh, the state capitol, and there's a Confederate memorial on the grounds of the state capitol. And, you know, my reaction to it as a white person raised in the South is, you know, it just sort of seems like the part of, part of the that I'm used to. Um, but somebody coming in from outside the South or somebody who is a person of color is going to look at that and, and feel uh, about it in a very different way than I do. And I think that that's a a really th interesting thing to acknowledge that that back and forth is that we are still in the middle of conversations about a lot of these things. And the point that I wanted to make about why birth of a nation matters so much is because the racial rhetoric that represented in it in 1915 is the same racial rhetoric that uh, the white supremacists in Charlottesville are chanting as they march through the streets. It's, it is a cinematic record of our worst racist thinking that still emerges out into the open, into the sunlight in ways that amaze me. And of course the it's in, it's when we talk about popularity in films, we can only look at gone with the wind, which I know is not as obvious as, as obviously as birth of a nation. And, and you're willing, you, you, you show a willingness to be a little less, critical of some of the racial aspects of Gone with the Wind, even though obviously if any movie was made to say that's the way it was, it was Gone with the Wind yeah. with all of its main titles and things. But uh, to, the concept that it was still considered to be one of the greatest films ever made and yet as Birth of a Nation and yet still has these issues. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's powerfully racist. And one of the things that I was trying to recapture in that chapter, uh, which is mostly about Casablanca. Right and the character of Sam. But um, with Hattie McDaniel's role and with Dooley Wilson's role in Casablanca, even though there's still aspects of racial stereotype to them, we have some characters who, for the first time, are being presented with some strength of character. They, they push back against the white leads in the film. Um, and so even though Mammy is a stereotypical Mammy and uh, Sam is in some ways a, a stereotypical coon, um, the sort of entertaining uh, black uh, man. There, there are also people that are presented as um, as uh, worthy of our sympathy. And um, I pointed out in the book that um, a number of uh, African American newspapers reviewed Casablanca and, and talked about the role of Sam as um, a quantum leap forward for um, African American actors. In fact, that was the next film I was going to ask you about because that's the Casablanca is the one you use for the second phase. And it's uh, unlike, obviously, Birth of a Nation, which race is everywhere. Casablanca really doesn't, you know, the race part of it is, is not materially important to the overall film. And yet its appearance there, particularly when it did, you know, during World War II and 
yeah. and the the role of Sam in how important he really was. It's almost like multiple phases were, were were jumped ahead in a way, but it for chronological purposes it definitely showed it. Uh, what aspects of Sam? I mean, you know, Bogart, the Bogart role in the film, he shows that he is considers Sam to be equal. Yeah. The, the very first thing that I, I reflect on in that film is that at the beginning of the movie, it makes a clear statement about Sam's humanity. And so the, the contrast, I mean, just the sharp contrast between birth of a nation is established for us at the outset. When, um, when, uh, Rick is responding to, uh, you know, the fellow saloon owner who wants to buy Sam. Uh, for his saloon, and and Rick just matter-of-factly says, I don't buy or sell human beings. It's like, you know, this is not even up for debate. We are past this conversation. Um, And the scene unfolds so that Sam is actually given his own agency. He's allowed to choose whether or not he wants to stay at at Rick's cafe or go and work for this other uh, uh, saloon owner. And, And so just in that opening section of the film, um, the contrast is so sharp. Here is a person who is uh, fully human. He's incredibly valuable. He has his own agency. He can come and go as he pleases. And his own choice is what matters here. Um, that's, I mean, that's a momentous kind of thing. But the other thing that I think is really central to the film, and, and sadly, as I point out, Sam gets diminished as a character in the last, say, third of the film as other characters become more important in terms of the plot. And um, I've had some conversations uh, with uh, one of the the great scholars who's done production history on the film, and I have always suspected that with so many screenwriters involved and working on a sharp deadline, that there are some ways in which Sam may simply have just fallen off of the radar because people had forgotten. But in, in the early parts of the film and up, through the flashback, the Paris flashback, um, it's clear that Sam is central to Rick's cafe, that his friendship with Rick is deep and authentic and reciprocal. And uh, the startling scene, and we actually included the image in the book because uh, it is such a pushback against even the racism of the day, is the scene in Paris where Rick and Sam and Ilsa toast each other. Right. And Ilsa is is toasting Sam in return, and the camera, I mean, the the uh, the editing is, is very clear about her returning his his toast. Um, there is there is no way that you can't think of him as as uh, equal to every other major character in the movie. And um, I, I really love the scene um, at the end of the flashback where basically Sam takes charge of Rick and pulls him onto the train leaving Paris, the last train leaving Paris. And, and I talked in the book about just the image of his hand on Rick's shoulder, you know, that, that hand there for comfort and, and solace. Um, just the, the human touch that we take for granted that would have been such a radical depiction for a, a film of that time. And like you pointed out, it's not just Sam. I mean, it's it's not just Rick; it's Ilsa as well. He's just as important, yeah. at least during that period, to her, and that yeah. that's radical. <laughs> and during that yeah, period, even you know, even going many years later, that's that is a really radical thing to do. 
Well, to have a relationship between a white woman and a black man flies in the face of all those stereotypes that, that fly out of birth of a nation. And um, I think about, you know, the cover of our, our book has uh, Sidney Poitier's um, character in Lilies of the Field, for which he was the first um, person to win the Best Actor, the first uh, African-American to win Best Actor. And, and I think of the, the plot mechanics that the filmmakers of that film came up with in the 1960s to allow him to be around white women. Uh, he, they're all nuns. They're all German nuns. And so, you know, there is this sort of, all, any sort of sense of sexual tension gets diffused. But the way that Sam and Elsa relate to each other, you can see that they are, they are dear to each other. They know each other well. And, you know, we were talking about Sam pushing back against Rick. Um, when Ilsa comes into Rick's, um, Sam reacts very strongly because he knows that Ilsa broke Rick's heart. And there's that, you know, amazing line where he asks her to go away. You're no good for him. And I mean, that's also an incredible line delivered from, you know, a black man to a white woman in, in 1942. Um, I, we, we, before we move more current, um, you know, because obviously these jumps are pretty big at that period. This period of time, we go from 1915 to 1942, so there's mm-hmm. a pretty big jump, and then the next jump's going to be pretty big as well. But did you you talk about, like I said, be, mentioned before, you used religion or or spirituality, depending on how you want to look at it. Did you see anything in in these first two movies that we've talked about where there are aspects that the you know that that how we view these concepts through the, through our uh, beliefs are important. Yeah. Yeah. In, in birth of a nation, one of the things that I wanted to explore was how the um, Hebrew and Christian Bibles deal with, um, with slavery. And um, there are a lot of really interesting things because, I mean, you know that um, slaveholders used religion as a way of um, affirming slavery. You know, they see it in the Bible. It's a, it's a natural state, um, according to that interpretation. And so one of the things that was really important for me was to, to push back against any idea that the Bible um, makes chattel slavery normative and that it can be defended on that basis. Um, and so what I wanted to do was to take a look at uh, what those, those uh, scriptural texts talk about. And, and most particularly, what I wanted to do is, as we said, to, to find some way to make meaning out of them. And um, I employed a lot of uh, Jewish scholars in that section, just talking about the fact that the, the story at the heart of the Jewish experience and then the theological story at the heart of the African-American church is uh, the idea of Exodus. You know, this, this movement from slavery to freedom and the whole idea that, that God, as we understand God uh, in the Bible, is not a God that could ever condone slavery. Um, my friend Kelly Brown Douglas at uh, the program we did in Washington in February, uh, she's a, a, an African-American theologian. And uh, I remember her saying something uh, as we were talking about the historical films we were showing in February. And she said, you know, the God that the slave owners introduced slaves to was not God. And uh, so I think that's kind of an important thing for anybody that feels like there could be something normative uh, about slavery, any kind of justification in terms of scripture. And then um, I think in Casablanca, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the, the power of spiritual community. Uh, the friendship between uh, Rick and, and Sam is such 
a formative thing. And in most wisdom traditions, there is this very powerful sense that we are shaped uh, by the people with whom we travel, you know, our, 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 our friends, our communities. I mean, I guess it is part of the reason that my mom used to object to the people I was hanging out with, um, because she had this sense that we are formed by the people that we're, uh, that we're around. And uh, so the, the way that, that Rick is formed uh, by Sam and also by some of the other characters in the film, um, his movement, and you know, as much as I love Sam, it's Rick's film, it's his moral development, his movement from somebody who is unwilling to stick his neck out for anybody to somebody who's willing to risk his life for a larger cause than himself. I mean, that is, that is the story of Casablanca, and it's a story that doesn't take place without Sam and without a couple of the other characters who push him uh, out of that tiny little envelope where his broken heart has put him. One of the things about the book that I found particularly apt is that even though none of these films have any real basis, you know, the religion is not important to them for plot or, or other aspects, the importance of religion, particularly in the African-American tradition, that this is one of the reasons why I think your view is so particularly interesting because it brings that extra step that maybe doesn't get discussed as much, even though it is such an important aspect for so many people uh, during the, you know, through present day. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's also, as you may know, one of the sort of personal uh, elements that involved here. I mean, you know, I'm more than just a person who went to divinity school. Um, my life history was changed when I was rescued by a, a historically African-American church in East Austin. And so a, a huge part of my feeling drawn to uh, these issues of race and prejudice is that I was welcomed into um, a tradition by people who didn't have to welcome me, um, by people who had been, you know, excluded um, from white churches and white institutions. And the lessons that I learned in that community and actually still learn from that community, even though I'm not a, a formal part of them anymore. Um, have been a huge part of why I felt like this was a book that I needed to write um, because I have a, a passion around these issues and because I've had a chance to hear uh, some of the people who have wrestled um, with these issues of exclusion and, and um, to experience their stories in the same way these films have helped me to experience some of these stories. So the first two books, or two, first two films, excuse me, during the obviously took you know, 60 years or 50 years to get us to what turns out to be the end of the studio system and hopefully the beginning of the rise of maybe changing some of the narratives. But the film that you use for your third phase, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which the average person, if you if they know the title at all, their, their basic thought process, if they haven't seen the film, is, you know, white women white woman wanting to marry a black man. And, yeah. the, and and what's what's interesting about or great about the chapter is is that you set it up with the historical aspect of what was going on during that period, which of course was the Loving case, where for the first time the Supreme Court finally mm -hmm. said laws against mixed marriages were unconstitutional. And yeah. And and the fact that a matter that these folk that the the loving couple who was a, a racially mixed couple uh, literally were thrown out of the state they lived in Virginia because 
they were a mixed-race marriage. And Guess Who's Coming to Dinner goes into that, and yet it's presented as a comedy. Yes, Um, and and a very particular kind of comedy, which I I want people to understand, because there are there are a bunch of plot things that don't make sense unless you understand the genre. And we always, you know, sort of say that when we talk about a story, what kind of story is it? And once we know what kind of story it is, then we understand the rules of that world a little bit. And so more particularly, although it's a a social comedy or a romantic comedy, um, it's also a drawing room comedy. And so it's, it's got a limited number of sets. It's a a limited uh, amount of time uh, in which the action can take place. And uh, the ticking clock in this particular story is that uh, the doctor played by Sidney Poitier has got to get a train, not a train, a plane, that would be fun, a plane to Switzerland uh, that night because he is like a world-renowned epidemiologist or something. Um, and so when you stand back from the film, We need go, him right now then if he's, a, if he's an epidemiologist. Yeah, we need him now. Yeah, we need him right now. Put him on a train back from Switzerland. Um, but it, it's a really interesting film because, as you point out, it is it is incredibly radical for its day. And when I've shown this film or when I've taught it, I, I have to contextualize it for audiences because they think of it as really sort of tame, if you will. And and part of that is because it's really tame in terms of its uh, filmmaking. It's a, Stanley Kramer is a very conservative filmmaker, even though he was progressive in terms of his social views. And this movie doesn't look like Easy Rider or The Graduate or The Wild Bunch, which are kind of its uh, contemporaries. But the really interesting thing that I think I noted in the book is that those stylistically innovative, startling films about the counterculture, for the most part, don't deal with race. So, like, you can watch The Graduate and, you know, you can you can be drawn into uh, all of its uh, you know, a conversation about our values, but you have to strain your eyes to catch a single person of color in the film. Um, And so what is really amazing about this movie is that it was made at this time um, when in a third of American states, you could not um, marry a person of another race. And so it was a, a really radical thing for this movie to be in production. And, um, the Loving Case actually came down shortly after the production had wrapped, shortly after, days after Spencer Tracy had died. And uh, so during the whole time of the making of this film, um, they were making a countercultural film, even though it's a very traditional uh, film in terms of its style. And of course, your point, one of the things you talk about in the book related to the film is this, this, this Spencer Tracy character, which of course gets presented as a you know a very you know in in a, in a in a way that is quite once again radical for the period he's presented as a very liberal person who believes in equality until it comes to his daughter yeah and and there are such interesting reversals in this film and uh, so we've got you know the the great liberal newspaper man uh who now is faced with okay here's what you said and now what are you going to do? And, and there's, you know, that great scene. And this is a film that actually does have some religion in it because we've got a, a Catholic clergyman who, who calls Spencer Tracy on it and says, you are not living up to your best values. Uh, you, you've gone back on yourself, Laddie, is how he puts it. But you are not living up to the, the person that I know you are capable of being, the person you're called to be. 
And uh, so there's a, a very powerful sense in which Spencer Tracy, who is, you know, the, the persona, he didn't, you know, he didn't play villains. He played solid, um, you know, genuinely good people, uh, like Catholic priests. And to see a character played by Spencer Tracy wrestling with racism was a really valuable thing for the audience. Now, in some ways, this is a story like the stories we talked about earlier, where things get wrapped up too easily. Um, you know, Spencer Tracy makes his pronouncement, and we have to recognize that it is the great white father mm-hmm. who gets to decide. And um, I remember at one of our programs, uh, one of the panelists was asking, why, why does the white girl's parents get to decide? Because, you know, Sidney Poitier is a whole lot more impressive than she is. Why don't his parents get to decide? Well, of course, uh, his, I, his parents are presented as not necessarily being happy about it either. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's not the Sidney Poitier character's father. You know, his disapproval doesn't right. matter. Right. Uh, I'm going to marry her, whatever you say, Dad. Right. Um, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit quietly and wait for Matt, the, you know, the newspaper man played by Spencer Tracy, to issue his pronouncement. And um, so it's, it's this really interesting mix of, of conservative and, and progressive uh, racial values. Um, and, and that's why I, I think of it also is, you know, it's kind of a turning point. It's one of those, you know, one step forward, two steps back kind of things. Look at this great thing that they did. And, Oh, look at this. Well, now moving forward again, um, the one move, the movie that I think to me is the most, not that they're not all interesting, but I think in many ways do the right thing to me is one of the most interesting in, in the book, partly because, it's the first of them where you can truthfully say this is an African-American being able to present his ideas as they are with little or no um, sugarcoating. And that's Spike yeah. Lee's Do the Right Thing, which, of course, you show as your uh, next phase, is it, which is it, 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 the reaction against it by traditional f- film reviewers was so strong. But yet that's it's, what's so powerful about it is, is that it. It just like birth of a nation shook you one way. This one shook people another way. Yes. Yes, that is absolutely right. I love that comparison. And, and I want to point out um, for listeners that um, one of the reasons that I include this book and not some of the other, I mean, there are great films made by black filmmakers like Charles Burnett between, you know, um, the intervals that we're talking about. Right. But this is, I mean, it's released by a major studio. Um, it's, uh, it's shown at Cannes. It was in contention for Best Picture at Cannes until some behind-the-scenes machinations. Uh, they ended up giving it to something else, which is what typically happens with Spike Lee at awards. And um, so this is this is a great example of a mainstream film in the sense that it's released by a Hollywood studio. It's on the awards circuit, um, and and then John Singleton's going to come along, you know, in, in a year or two, and 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 sort of. Um, also do the same kind of thing that Spike Lee's doing here. But it it is such a provocative film. It's such a challenging film. And even though last year was its 30th anniversary, um, I have never shown the film where I have not um, walked out uh, powerfully shaken and um, thinking about the movie. And I'm sure I've seen it 30 times. I've taught it um, a bunch of times, shown it over and over again. 
And it's a troubling film for many people, including those white reviewers who were afraid that, that Spike Lee was going to start a riot because it doesn't tie things up for us neatly. Um, you know, we've got a, 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 a black man murdered by police, um, violence in the, the neighborhood in response to that. And then what? And a lot of times when people are frustrated with this film, they say, well, I, I thought it was going to tell me what the right thing is. And, and that's just not Spike Lee's method. You know, what he wants to do is he wants to provoke you into thinking. And so he prevent, presents us with all of these different characters. Some of them um, who do something like the right thing. Some of them who do whatever the opposite of the right thing might be. And, you know, most of them just sort of muddling along in the middle. And so I, I talk in the book about uh, the mayor, the character played by actor and civil rights activist uh, Ossie Davis who is, you know, the, the town drunk, the, the neighborhood drunk. Um, but he's also the person who most persistently does the right thing. So on the one hand, you know, he is a, a person who's ridiculed um, because of his addiction. And on the other hand, he's the person who stands up uh, as they're about to do a horrific act of violence and say, please don't do this. You know, we're never going to be able to turn back or look at each other in the same way if we do it. Well, and then Spike Lee... And, and this is the example, obviously, he just isn't willing to compromise to make, as you say, to, we don't want a pretty bow at the end or have everything wrapped up perfectly. We, The whole idea is, is that this is a continuation and, and to say that, okay, well, in two hours or so, we can solve the problems of the world in this neighborhood is impossible. Yeah. And that's what he's trying to say is that, uh, you can't, it's not something that that's going to be solved easily. And as we know, as you've pointed out, I mean, you know, when I'm recording this right now, there are riots going on in Minnesota because of, right. of issues. And it's just unfortunate that that film was made in 89. And as you point out, 30 years later, those issues are still being dealt with in an incredibly powerful way, just as much as they were back then. You know, I, I, um, a lot of attention to social media, probably too much attention, but I, I try and pay attention to things that inspire and excite and, and, and move me. Um, not just things that make me angry because they're, I mean, that's what social media seems to have been made for. I mean, that and cat pictures. Um, but <laughs> I like the dog pictures myself, but well, or dogs or dogs, <laughs> so, you know, um, but Stephanie Spellers, who's um, the priest in charge of racial reconciliation for the Episcopal church. Um, she tweeted something this week that just broke my heart because, you know, I'm doing all of this conversation about these great films and what they can teach us about race. And yet we are at this moment, you know, experiencing the same thing that Spike Lee made his movie about 31 years ago. And, and Stephanie Spellers just tweeted the single sentence. When are you going to stop killing us? And I was just like, yes. When are we going to learn the lesson? You know, what does it take and how can we have a movie that is so powerful that that breaks your heart and we walk out and the world is still the same because it doesn't feel like the world can be the same after you've been so profoundly moved by a work of art. And it is so different, as you pointed out, from uh, Fighting Miss Daisy, which actually won Best Picture <laughs> the year that, <laughs> that Do the Right Thing came out. Hoke, you're my best friend. We have solved racism. The end. 
Well, and unfortunately, this is what we keep talking, what we talked about both with guests who's coming to dinner and, and so forth. I mean, during the civil rights era, as things started to get more and more violent, it was the white liberals in many cases that would say things like you're ruining your uh, chances for for improvement because you're doing things like this. That the, and as we've talked about with with this film, with the uh, the white traditional white film reviewers who saw it as a step back yeah. as a forget the one two steps forward, one step back. This was three steps back as far as they were concerned. Well, you know, from the book that James Baldwin is one of my guides all the way through. And he is for me, the most reliable writer on race and culture because he's able to help me understand from his point of view, um, works of art, uh, acts of history, political, um, I mean, debate, there is this very strong sense in which James Baldwin is, is the corrective to all those white liberals who are like, why are y'all doing this? And you know, the, the voice of Baldwin just rings in my ears and his explanations. And, and basically, you know, it's just like Stephanie Sweller's tweet. You know, I can imagine a tweet from James Baldwin, um, which would be something like, you know, until y'all stop killing us, don't expect us, you know, to, to sit down and, and live you know, quietly, um, you know, there are still so many ways that we are in oppression. And um, so that's, that's been one of the great experiences of writing this book is that I was able to, to dive really deeply into James Baldwin, uh, who has long been one of my favorite writers, but um, now to sort of rely on him as one of those voices in conversation that we were talking about at the beginning of the broadcast. So now we've got two films left, and quite frankly, we're starting to run out of time. I don't want to give them short shrift, but they're also the more current ones. Uh, Crash, right. which, um, as you point out in the book, got some pretty you, – you, you give it much more credit than was given to um, by many, uh, particularly given that it's another one of the films where we've got to have the white person get a you know a new lease on life and a, and a new way of living, yep. but – uh, it, you still consider it to be an important role, part of this ongoing transformation. I do, I do. And one of the things that's important is I've, I teach it less as a realistic film, and I think all of these films with multiple storylines you know, have the same sort of problem that a Dickens novel has. You know, in a, in a Dickens novel, you have to believe that there are only 12 people in London right. and that they keep running into each other over and over again. And so, well, isn't that how situation comedies work? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you, you've got to take these coincidences as, you know, we were talking about genre. This is an essential part of a genre like this or Magnolia, which is also right. um, an, another of my favorite films. Um, and, and what I love about this film, and, and there were plenty of people who didn't like it, uh, but Roger Ebert named it his best film of the year. The African-American Film Critics Association named it its best film of the year. Um, and, and so there was some critical regard for it. And when I teach it as something other than a hyper-realistic narrative, people seem to be able to respond to it in a really powerful way. And uh, so one of the things that I talked about in the book is that it represents this phase of you know, much more casual multiculturalism, um, that it's not such a big deal now that there are a bunch of people of color and uh, a bunch of different um, cultures represented in the film. And um, it is you know, the, uh, the white policeman who is usually depicted in the trailers and on the poster, but almost all of the characters have a, a set of a set moral movements in one direction or another. 
during the film. And, and that's one of the powerful things that I wanted to write about because um, there is this, this real sense of um, possibility. Um, and, and so in the same way that we're, we're waiting for Spencer Tracy's character to become his best self, um, we, can, we can look at some of these characters who don't seem like very good people when we're first introduced to them because uh, the method of the movie is uh, to sort of present them as a stereotype and then to expand that by pushing back against our first impressions. Um, and, and so I think a lot about the character played by Ludacris in the film, um, who goes on this moral journey. And uh, there are several people, you know, like we were talking about agents of moral change, the community, the people that rub up against him during the course of the film. And he makes um, this, he, he commits this really deeply moral act at the end of the film that is surprising to a lot of people. And then you look back and you sort of see the, the way stations, you know, the, the different stops he's made along his journey. And, and so I loved that, and I loved uh, some of the other characters in the film, and, and including the, the way the white policeman is treated. Um, you know, he's, he's a, a racist, he sexually assaults a person, and then he rescues her from a burning car. And I just, I love the complexity and the, the humanity of many of these characters. You know, they are, they are not presented uh, as easy stereotypes as the film first intends us to expect. And then, of course, finally Get Out, which uh, you chose to be the final film, but I suspect that there have been a number of films recently that you might have been able to use as well. But uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, when we first started talking, Get Out being something where um, African-American has total agency and can and basically turns things on its head. It's the way you put it. Yeah, I I'm thinking of Get Out as a film like um, Black Klansman is another film that I could have written about here. Uh, Blind Spotting, uh, co-written by David Diggs. Um, I had originally thought that I would write about Moonlight as the last film, but uh, what Get Out does so well is that it ties into a bunch of other films that we've examined in the book. Um, there's you know the the faithful black maid in Get Out, and finally for the first time we have an explanation for why a person might be so supernaturally attached to their white family and, you know, forget all about their black family. But there are just so many ways that, that um, the film turns genres and tropes on its head as a way of pushing back against Hollywood's and America's racism. Um, so like one of the, the simplest things, and this is a film that has so many twists and turns, that I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. But one easy thing that I can tell you about is that um, typically um, in a horror film, there is a, a trope called um, first, first Man Out. Mm -hmm. And um, that is almost always a black man. Uh, if you're a black man in a horror film, um, in a traditional slasher film, you can expect that you will be the first person to die and the white virgin will be the person who, who lives, you know, bloodied and bowed, but, but still alive at the end of the film. And... Um, you know, what Jordan Peele does is he makes um, Chris, the, the black photographer, the white virgin. Uh, he turns that trope on its head and a bunch of other tropes during the course of the movie. And then the other thing that's just really lovely is it's, you know, it's a retelling of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner um, that has a lot of really familiar elements from that first film. 
and that also ends up, you know, sort of turning them in another direction. You know, here, here's this white liberal family and uh, the father who would have voted for Obama for a third time. And there's still white racism at work in a white progressive family. Well, it seems only right that the book starts with a film that bashes you over the head and it ends with a film that bashes you out of, over the head. <laughs> it's just a matter of yeah. who's doing the bashing, I think. Uh, yeah. Well, first off, well, or not first off, last off, one of the things I found so great about this book is I could see how it can make it, – it's a logical progression in that if a, 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 a film historian or a film professor would want to – come up with a sequence similar to this, they could find their own books, too, films too, or just use the same ones you did. There's just so much there from the information you presented. So I think more than anything, um, the sequence and, and the way you put this together really helps to provide a, a, a good roadmap for others. Oh, Joe, thanks so much. It, I mean, it is my hope that this book will be useful and that it will spark conversations because that's... Um, that has been the most meaningful part of the writing for me is all the different conversations that I got to be a part of, uh, to listen in on, and to sort of recreate that sense of conversation um, in this book as well. So it is my hope that people will take it, they'll use it, that it'll generate conversations outside uh, of its covers. Well, and I'm sure you're going to continue on with your um, um, your your showings, your, your group uh, showings of, of films and, and, and hopefully continue to get new insights, uh, the views of others as far as understanding these important aspects. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for discussing the book with me, Greg. I really enjoyed our discussion. I hope the book's just out not that long ago, so hopefully you will continue to be able to talk very glowingly about it, and, and I do appreciate your time. Well, Joel, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. My thanks to Greg Garrett. His book presents a great method to watch the films and follow along with this journey. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.